0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Billage Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Jeff Chang, growth engineering lead at Pinterest and active angel investor, and Fareed Mostavat, EIR at Reforge and director of product at Slack. Fareed, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Awesome. We're going to do a deep dive on growth. So uh, by way of introduction, you guys have been doing growth for for a long time now. How have you seen sort of the, the science or the industry of growth evolve in the last you know, five years even decades since you guys you guys have been doing it
1: i can go first on that one i think in the earliest date, you know when i first heard about growth it was in the early days of social networking i think where really when the term really started to first come out and start to be start to to become more common and really it was a result of the fact that we saw Some really substantial changes in terms of the way that consumer products, especially online consumer products, came to market around virality, around around email, around new channels and those kinds of things. I think early on, a lot of this, the way I describe that era was like the secret magic era of growth in a lot of ways. Uh, A lot of the earliest practitioners of growth tried to keep as much of what they were learning to themselves, because there were these like angles and tricks and sort of like dark, not dark patterns, but dark magic about how you could drive growth on some of those early social networks from Fens- Friendster to Facebook to even Tagged and LinkedIn and all of those things. A lot of those different companies that started to figure it out. And also in social gaming, which is where I got my start with Zynga and building on top of these, uh, on top of those social platforms that were also growing. And I think the biggest thing that's changed is, at least in my perspective, One, we're seeing growth become a name that's used, but also a set of practices used across almost every kind of online product, in particular from D2C e-commerce type things, all the way to B2B uh, software uh, like Slack or even more core enterprise software. So the name has started to become used in a lot of different ways that has muddied its meaning. So that's, I think, the bad thing is that it's not clear what it means anymore. And second, though, I think what we're seeing is an evolution towards growth and growth practices, data-driven product management, and, the, and those kinds of things. Growth is changing to become more like traditional product management and product manage, traditional product development and marketing are becoming more like growth um, as the data and sort of creative sides of this collide.
2: Yeah, well, Farisa, said a lot, and I would agree with pretty much everything you said, so not too much to add upon. I would just say that... Um, I think before the teams that are working on growth were probably a lot smaller than in general than the teams working on growth now as kind of Fried mentioned. So uh, as a result, I guess teams have been a lot lot smarter um, now versus before in terms of like figuring out what metrics actually matter, figuring out what growth channels work. Uh, Because before everyone was trying pretty much everything to try to get the numbers to go up. But now everyone has a lot more data. Everyone knows what kind of works for other companies. So there's kind of these few growth channels that are kind of the foundations that companies in general uh, use to start out with that are, and there's a lot more commonality between companies, whereas before I felt like more companies are kind of trying to forge their own path and grow in their own
0: way. Totally. I, I want to sort of zoom out, you know, in the last uh, few years, everyone became obsessed with, with product market fit. Once, once we discovered the term, that's what everyone was focused on, on achieving. And then we had, you know, different people defined it in, in different ways or didn't define it. What, what are sort of the right ways or, or, or not right ways of thinking about product market fit? Jeff, you've written a bit about this and you thought a lot about it. Why don't you take the first step? How, how do you know yeah. when you have it? what is it?
2: Yeah. So I think to, to talk about product market fit and you first like define it, because I think it has a lot of Different definitions, like what is kind of even the point of figuring out product market fit. I would say first we need to reach an understanding that the point of product market fit is to figure out when is it worth it to start working more and more on acquisition channels because it's not worth working on acquisition channels unless your product is at a certain point. So in other words, figuring out if you have product market fit is like figuring out is your product good enough where um, you can start investing more in acquisition channels. So then then how do you find how do you find the point in which your product is good enough where it's worth investing in that is kind of the difficulty and there's obviously a lot of different metrics like nps how disappointed would users be if they couldn't use your product like retention and they are kind of trying to gauge the same kind of thing which is basically like how much do users love your product do users love your product enough where by applying acquisition strategies you can grow a really large user base is is kind of the premise of product market fit and I think like obviously there's no perfect metric and every metric is kind of trying to measure this kind of the same thing, how much the users love your product and obviously, met- like NPS measures that. Would users be disappointed if they can use it, measures that and user retention. If you just actually use your product and then come back later and use it again, obviously measures that. Uh, me personally, I like the retention uh, metric as kind of uh, my favorite metric to measure product market fit because for a few reasons. Number one, it's like, a requirement for almost every successful company. Every successful company has really great retention. Pretty much, um, there's very few exceptions to that. Um, number two, it's it's a measure of everyone who used the product, not just a few certain. If you use survey-based metrics like NPS or how disappointed would people be if they couldn't use a product, you're only getting a sample of the people who actually respond to the survey. So you get some survey bias, and um, you don't actually get the full view of the data. So, um, and also. In growth, we have a really good understanding right now of like what good retention looks like for different types of companies. So I feel like, yeah, it's a really useful metric for determining how much people actually love your product.
0: And, and you're a fan of cohort models as a way to measure retention. Why that?
2: Oh, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I think a lot of companies measure retention the incorrect way, which is um, you never want to mix old users with new users because when you look at retention of old users, a lot of the people – users who have lower intent already turned out. So you're basically looking at high intent users. So the retention will be good for old users. And then your mixed retention rate will just be how many new users versus how many old users you're actually combining. So that's why mixed retention rates don't really make sense. You always have to look at retention on a cohort basis, which is taking a group of users who joined at around the same time and they get pretty much around the same user experience when they joined. I totally
1: agree that retention is the most important metric um, and retention is important, but I I think it's also important to ask yourself the question, is this product growing on its own? I think that um, while there's sort of product market fit, there's the early days of should I really be investing in growth is really the question that I think a lot of founders are trying to answer and a lot of companies are trying to answer. And the easiest way to answer that is sort of a backwards question, which is, are you growing already? And by are you growing already, I think it's is the combination of your engagement, your retention, and your word of mouth acquisition. Are people talking about it just enough that the number of people coming back to your product month over month is growing on its own? And the total number of people actively using your product or revenue or whatever the baseline most important metric is for your business, depending on whether it's consumer or enterprise, is growing on its own. At a clip that you feel like, has some energy and momentum to it. Um, and the reason for that is, is because I think great products like have a foundational engine that's working where all of the little pieces and the foundation, like the core of that is built by your product. Your, it's your product, your early positioning and how all the pieces fit together. And that's sort of hard to measure. It's sort of like at the end of the day, is it working? Is the question that you're trying to answer. The reason I think it's important to wait until that point before you really invest in traditional sort of next step, you know, one to end growth type things is that I do believe that most of your levers have some baseline that you can move up or down with things like optimization and experimentation and growth type strategies, but that the foundational sort of like where it fits in the market and where you are banded in terms of like strata of retention, engagement, et cetera, is sort of defined by the product itself. Um, there are things you can do to go to like pull through the cycle to the next step. But I think for the next stage, which is what I would call the acceleration stage where you're taking an existing product and accelerating its adoption, you don't, the levers are there's not like step function impact that you can make sometimes. And so you have to be growing. Like you have to build on some momentum. So yeah, I think the other thing about product market fit that's interesting is I think we've actually over-indexed on it uh, pretty dramatically in terms of how we talk about product development in particular. And then we've also talked a lot about growth. But I think that it's important to note that there are, first off, uh, this is something I've taken from some of the work I've done at Reforge and working with Brian Balfour and others is this idea of the other fits. So I think there's product market fit there's also product market channel fit, like how do you attract customers? Where do they come from? I don't think you can slap any channel onto any product. What works for a super viral product is, or a consumer product is going to be very different than an enterprise software product. And finding that market channel fit is almost like the most important next step when you're trying to build a business, right? And then the last one I would add, and I think about this a lot because I've worked a lot on subscription and freemium type businesses, is what I would call product business model fit. So how well does the way you charge or how you make money or what your revenue engine looks like match the customers that you have So the market? What are, how do they like to pay for things? How do they think about the value that your product provides? But also the product itself. Is freemium a good fit? Is trial a good fit? Is this a pay per seat or pay per usage type product? Is this an ad driven product? That those questions and your answers to them are dependent on the product and you also need product business model fit. There's obviously, of course, so each pair of these is important. And I think what you do, we've talked so much about the earliest days, getting product market fit. We talk a lot about like growth tactics. How do I drive acquisition? But I think these other two fits are also super important to think about and are really like your most important second and third step as you're trying to build the product and take it to market.
0: Yeah. And we need to zoom out even further for people who are, you know, further down from the funnel and say, hey, okay, now I have a better sense of product market fit is, but h- how do I get it? What sort of the framework uh, do you? How do you as You know, lean startup was sort of uh, in vogue for a while. What's your sort of take on on that versus any sort of alternative framework or method for thinking about you know uh, even getting to product market?
1: Can I be honest with you? Please. Like- I think product market fit in a lot of ways is magic uh, and is like early founder stuff. I mean, there are things we do when we build new features, build new products, but often we're talking to an existing market. We're talking to our existing customers. How do we build a new feature to, to, and take it to market? And honestly, it's been a long time since I've worked on a true zero to one first time product to market problem. And what's weird is you have two variables, like not just what's the product, but who is it right for? And I think that adds a lot of complexity and, 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 and creates a lot of art. Uh, to it. I think my main pieces of advice are try to find the narrowest definition of market that you can find that you believe actually scales into something meaningful. Not in terms of there are a lot of those kinds of people. I think that's where people run into mistakes. There are enough of those kinds of people to get some early signal, but you can see a path to how you grow that market step-by-step over time, if that makes sense. That would be my main piece of advice is is a lot of products try to go too broad too early and have a hard time being something valuable to anybody in particular. But I've spent most of my career helping uh, founders scale the products that already have product market fit. So I I can't claim to be an expert on that. Jeff probably has a better perspective having done a lot more uh, early stage investing.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I would agree. I agree actually a lot with three it's like, it's kind of like magic where it's interesting that like... Growth people have figured out how to grow products which already have product market fit. Like that's that's pretty much a given. If a product has product market fit, it's probably growable with, with someone with the right expertise. But like go, making a product that has product market fit is still kind of like a black box, like magical kind of thing that people have not been able to replicate. Um, if you think about it, like a lot of the biggest companies in the world, like Facebook, Google, they have launched a lot of products that also don't have great product market fit um and that's not due to poor execution it's just it's just hard to figure out what users actually want so my advice here to founders usually is the is to kind of like take more shots on goal in terms of like just know that in reality the majority of products that people build don't have product market fit and it's it's really easy to kind of tell when they don't have product market fit if like for example, the retention is not good. If so, if people start using the product and they never come, and a very few of them come back second like, time, then it's really easy to tell that they don't have the product market fit. So, being able to kind of notice this early on and and figure out like what what is the next thing we try, like what can we learn, what do we learn from this, what do we think the user want, and what do they actually want, and what can we build that actually addresses what they actually want um, is kind of my advice here, and not so. You have to in the beginning, um, yeah. Just try to just try to be really real about like, is there actually product market fit? And don't be afraid to pivot um, based on your learnings and kind of take more shots on the goal.
1: Although I would, I like, I think of it as a hierarchy. Like, where should you be static and rigid, and where should you be flexible? And I think great teams are generally. Like, let's go from most rigid to most flexible, like mission and vision for your company. Like, what change do we want to bring into the world? I think great organizations are pretty, like, focused and singularly focused on what that is. Of course, there are examples of like Instagram and other companies like that, like that have these hard pivots. Slack is actually a great example of a hard pivot where the strategy or mission or the top, or sorry, the mission or vision really, really change. I think those are rare. And I think those examples are, are dangerous actually in most cases. I think the next step below that, which is the, like what I would call strategy, how are we going to achieve that mission should be, you know, relatively static. In terms of what is it we're trying to do, what are we like? What are the most important building blocks? I would answer that with what problem are we trying to solve, and in what order? I think you can move those pieces around, but you should be very careful about that because distraction is the enemy, right? And then on tactics, features, and individual user behaviors, like how are people actually doing this? Are we right about the hypotheses that we've made? Are the things we're building actually working? That's where you want to be like the most honest meaning and by honest I mean most reactive to feedback and most willing to change but it's sort of hierarchical. I like to think of it as like, okay, what are we learning about this specific thing we built? Is it the right thing? Did it solve a problem or not? Be super flexibly there. Are we solving the right problem? It should take a couple of no's on the first, you know, layer to get to a no there and then shift. And then are we attracting the right vision at all? Is there a market here, period? Honestly, I think most companies shouldn't ever change that, uh, or at least by some definition of that, because that's what everybody came on to do. That's what everybody like joined your company to be a part of. That's the way you're motivating people to do like heroic work. So uh, I would be most careful about vision changes, though. Of course, I've worked for a company that did like the hardest pivot of all time and was successful with it. So, you know, it depends.
0: Do as I say, now what I do.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you, you mentioned product channel fit. How, how should founders be thinking uh, about developing that?
1: Yeah, so I think you have to start again with a strategy like I, I think... Great plans are built by having like a clear picture of what you believe your loops are, right? Like from growth, like what are going to be the most uh, valuable loops that we're going to build? They're going to build compounding, meaningful, nonlinear impact over time. And that's where I would focus your time and effort. And honestly, these days, there are so many products in market and so many successful companies that you can kind of look at for inspiration that I think there are uh, that, It's usually best to find one or two that you want to experiment or play around with and really start to build those. So meaning, is SEO or content the kind of thing? What are the ingredients that would make that a valuable channel for me? Is paid social or paid uh, search like something that could work for me? Are there any analogs in the market that might work? Is virality real? And I think really like trying to find some early signals either from, you know, similar companies or based on a qualitative analysis of what your product is and what it does. And then leaning into those is the best way to get started there. Jeff, what do you, what do you think?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think again, you said like pretty most of what's to be said about there, but yeah, um, for product channel fit, at least on the consumer side, the two, most pop- the two most popular channels that are big, big meaning they can actually bring you like thousands, tens of thousands of users a day are SEO and referrals. And as we said, like, It's it's pretty much like for SEO, it's like, can you actually generate unique user generated content? Yes or no? And if it's a yes, then you have product market fit, uh, product channel fit for SEO. And for referrals, is can you offer an incentive that people actually want and will actually um, invite their friends in order to get? And if the answer is yes, then you have referrals, product channel fit. Um, Of course, there's different levels of product channel fit. Like some referral systems work better than others, some SEO systems work better than others. But like, if you, obviously, if you, let's say you have product market fit, if you also have product channel fit with, with SEO and referrals, that's, that's way better than just, than just having product market fit. Yeah. And I think some of these, again, why I
1: thought I mentioned earlier, like all this has to be built on word of mouth in some respects, because a lot of these things are really accelerators of that core word of mouth type loop, right? Like I love this product. I love about it enough to tell somebody else. Referrals become can be an engine on top of that. Um, there are some products that are more attuned to it. Like you get real in-product value for an invite, right? Facebook is the canonical example of that. Or a Slack, for instance. Like I need to actually communicate with other people. The more people I'm communicating with, the better like internal network effect I get. But then for an Instacart, a referral is really an accelerator of an existing word-of-mouth loop right? I'm going to give you 10 bucks to get a free delivery and uh, a a discount on your grocery purchase. That's just accelerating behavior, hopefully, that I already have, which is telling you how cool Instacart is. And certain ones are better fits for others. I think it's hard to do incentivized referrals like the Instacart program, for instance, for B2B products, because like, is saving my employer 50 bucks, like really something that I care about that much? Uh, Would it really change my behavior? I don't know, right?
0: There are... I want to get into uh, metrics. M- metrics that matter. Metrics that don't matter. Maybe Jeff, we can start with you. You've written a bit about it, and you, you've talked. Like one thing you've talked about is or written about is LTV and CAC are not the things we should think about. Well, why don't you sort of go through some metrics that we should pay attention to and some that we shouldn't and, and why not?
2: Yeah. Uh, so it's it's totally stage dependent. Um, for example, LTV and CAC. If you're a late stage startup or if you're a public company, you must pay attention to it. If you're early stage and you spent like hundred dollars on paid, probably shouldn't pay attention to it. So it's everything is stage dependent. I guess we can focus the discussion um, on around seed stage companies because that's where most of us look at in terms of investment. Retention is obviously really important, as I mentioned before, because it's a good indicator of product fit. Metrics that don't matter, like I'll say like LTV CAC, like let's say you spend like a thousand dollars or even ten thousand dollars acquiring customers early on as a seed stage company. Um, if you scale that spend to a hundred thousand dollars, then your CAC will be completely different. And also like now versus a year from now, your LTV will be very different because your product will be very different. So that's why I don't think LTV and CAC are, are both metrics that are really important because they they just change too much. A year from now would be way different than what they are now. So they're not really indicative of kind of the future growth potential. Other growth metrics that I don't think matter as much. In the beginning, I would say quantity metrics matter less than quality metrics. For example, quantity metrics are like, do you have 1,000 or 10,000 MAU um, versus quality metrics are things like retention is a quality metric. For example, um, do you have like 50% long-term retention or 10% long-term retention matters a lot more in the beginning than if you have 10,000 versus 1,000. Other, really, other quality metrics are like um, like ratio metrics, like a Dow can sometimes be important for certain companies. For example, in, let's say you're a B2B company and you're a project management tool that someone should be using every single day to get value from it, then your Dow mouse should be pretty good. Of course, for those kind of quality metrics, it's less like you can't just compare every single company because different companies have different use cases. Some use cases you don't have to use as often. So yeah, that's, dial-mouse is another good quality metric. Just like a lot of these quality metrics are more ratio metrics than like the quantity metrics. So really what you're trying to figure out in the beginning is not how many users you have, but really what you're trying to figure out is do I have a product that is so good that people are willing to pay for it, people are willing to pay more for it over time, people are willing to come back every single day to use it if needed. Yeah, so those kind of quality metrics I think are, are less, much more important in the beginning than the quantity metrics. Yeah, I think like I sum that up as I think there are what I'm
1: looking for when I talk to early stage companies, if they have any metrics at all, is some sign of stickiness products that people use more than once are orders of magnitude more valuable than products that people use once and are done with. So and what are those things? So that's step one. Two is also like from is actually a little more qualitative for me is does that founder or that founding team have some nuanced or sophisticated view about what they're measuring and how they're thinking about it, even if they're not measuring it and why they believe that's the right way to think about the problem is one that I'm always looking for is like as a sign of if this person will be able to scale into the role of a leader and thinking in a growth perspective over time. So have they thought about what the frequent, the the correct frequency of use, like what their natural frequency of usage for their product is, how they want to measure retention what they, how they think about where they are today and whether it's good enough or not. Sometimes I I get a lot of feedback, you know, great feedback, just having that conversation with folks and understanding where they think about it. And then the second I think is, is there some sign that there's a business here? Uh, So that's willingness to pay. Is there some sign of willingness to pay? Sometimes that's a conversion rate. I would love to see that if your business is already there, but I think there are other ways, qualitative measures of that or known business models that can apply. And then in a business that has real world components, I think unit economics and like, what is your cost to deliver a unit of value and how does that compare to the, the price people are paying for it has become more and more important over time. I think the days of, uh, running at negative unit economics with the hope that you'll figure it out later are, are mostly over. Uh, we're probably already over, but they're definitely over now. Um, those are really the three key things. The one thing I would add on the LTV question is one. Yeah. Like Jeff, I always skip that slide for a seat. I mean, it's Dude, just like, I always skip it, it no almost never, never means anything actually the only time I don't skip it is when it looks bad, like like bad and they're calling it good. And that to me, again, this is like trying to get signals for the depth of understanding that a founder has for their business. I think it probably hurts you more than it helps you. Um, Because if it's really, really good, that's often a sign that you like, you have a rabid early user base. Of course, your numbers look good, right? Like they should look good. They should look amazing, right? But the CAC side, like the acquisition costs, like who knows? Like the fantasy that like prices go down as you scale is like, generally not true. Like you end up paying more for customer N plus one than you did for customer N for almost all N, (laughs) you know? So like, uh, I think that you have to, there's a lot of magical thinking that comes in there. The only thing I would say that I, uh, is a shift that I would love to see more founders take, especially those that are driving high uh, paid loops, like they're using paid advertising as a driver of sales, do you see type companies have this dynamic, some enterprise software companies, you know, those kinds of things is um, a bigger focus on payback periods than on LTV and uh, uh, customer acquisition costs. Meaning how quickly if I spend a dollar on advertising, how quickly do I get it back in not just revenue, but like uh, contribution margin. And the reason for that is, is it's hard to build compounding growth on a paid channel without a sh- ton of money. I was about to swear, uh, without a ton of money, unless you have fast payback periods. Because what you're really trying to ask yourself is, can I reinvest these dollars into more growth? And if it takes you a year or two to get those dollars back, then you're counting on someone, an investor, an outside market, some debt to give you money to grow. Because once you baseline, you add a thousand installs a week, you can never stop doing a thousand installs a week. Let's be honest, especially for a venture-backed business. So you need to figure out how to turn that thousand into eleven $1, hundred, eleven $1, hundred into twelve hundred. And some of that's going to be driven by retention. Some of that's going to be driven by referrals and virality and SEO and the other dynamics that you have. But if paid advertising is a the driver, then you better have a fat, you got the faster your payback period, the better you can do that and scale it without outside investment.
0: Hey, so what's the right framework for uh, evaluating payback period for different types of businesses or how founders should be thinking about it or investors should be, should be thinking about? It?
1: Yeah. So I like to think about it as like, what is the cost to acquire a customer? And then how, you know, how quickly can I get that back? And that can be a lot of things. It's not just paid advertising. It could be for an enterprise company. What does it cost to set them up and get going? What's the implementation cost? What's the sales cost? The other, you know, it's, it's all of the cost to get a customer to like successful. So say like activation or roughly, and then there's sort of a margin question, which is like, what's my ongoing cost of investment? Uh, to keep this person going, right? I would say in the earliest days, being su- lots of people are super sophisticated about this, but I think you can kind of like put your finger in the air and try to like come up with big buckets because what you're looking for is like, I would say like rough scales. Do I get it back in a month, a quarter, a year, forever? <laughs> On the earliest days, leave the like, you know, per channel, like highly uh, sensitive measurement stuff to the late stage pros, I would say early on, it's just like bigger than a bread box, smaller than a bread box, I think is really what I would be looking for.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Like um, basically the rule of thumb I give founders is, it should be very obvious that you're getting paid back very like within a month. Like you shouldn't have to like do very complex math. It should just be like, oh, you're spending like $1,000 and it's very obvious that the customers are coming to pay generate over $1,000 in a month. So it should be very obvious that it's, pretty it's fairly quick and quick meaning like in like the one to two month range not like in a six month range
0: yeah and so when when investors ask founders for ltb cac or even thoughts of what it should be is that just totally the, the wrong question and if so how do you respond to them and let them know that or, or uh are there things that they should be doing early to give some signal for later on
2: yeah i mean so like if i were a founder and like First of all a lot of startups sh- shouldn't be doing that much paid in the beginning yeah. anyway just because they don't have that much capital so like if I were a founder I probably wouldn't be doing that much paid in the beginning so th- there wouldn't be in like an LTV and CAC and then like if I had to answer if someone asked me what my LTV CAC was um for LTV I would probably say like based on the data we have like we know that x month LTV is around this around this much um but like past x months like let's say the product has only been launched for like three months, it's really kind of not worth the time to predict what six month LTV, 12 month LTV is. And so that's, I would, I would say something like that because it's, it's unpredictable. Number one, it's unpredictable. No one knows what the right number is, even if you have all data in the world. And number two, what the number is now is different than the number 12 months from now. So it's kind of not a useful metric. Yeah. And then, um, cat, I mean, free kind of already explained. Yeah. Like, and plus your next dollar that you add will be the next customer that you add to paid will be more expensive than before. So that's why like, I, like, yeah, both me and Freed, we we completely yeah. ignore LTV tech numbers for us. Yeah.
1: Let's say I were a bold founder. I was feeling pretty good about myself and my business. and I wanted to push back on that question. I would say, I think two, one of two different things. I would say, hey, I don't think we have enough data to understand our current payback period. So I think that's not the right question to ask right now. But let's reason about bottoms up what this thing could look like at scale and why I believe this is the right – like. Likely lifetime value number for this company. So if it's like a freemium business, I'd say like, you know, we believe we can convert activate forty percent of our signups. Roughly twenty five percent of those are going to maintain as active customers, and we think we can have half of those be paid because it's freemium business model. These are our comps with an average of fifteen seats at this price. That's going to look like this much revenue per year. And I think you know I don't know as well as you. Why not, you know what are you seeing for comps in terms of acquiring? customers that look like this in the market? Like that kind of thing. Does that seem reasonable to you? That's question one way you could answer it. The second is I would push back. I would re- reverse it and say something like, I think the question you're really asking is fundamental, which is how is this business going to grow? I think that's really what people are asking when they ask things like CAC and LTV ratios, because they're asking, can you spend money to make money? Can you build a flywheel of growth here or not? And I would answer that with here are the ways we believe we can grow efficiently over time. So like if I were, I'm not Stuart Butterfield, I don't know, but like if I were him in 2014, I'd say, you know, we are building an incredibly viral, internally viral product. It supports... Uh, we are starting to see a lot of communities grow on Slack and amazing word of mouth. And we believe that we can accelerate that into low cost acquisition and a bottoms up adoption model that'll see it into all of the enterprises in the world so that we're selling not cold, like traditional enterprise sales, but into active users inside of the engineering teams inside of uh, the world's largest companies. And we know that there's an opportunity for growth there. The numbers are obvious, something like that. Or I would say, you know, We're building marketplace. Uh, uh, Our supply side is generating all kinds of great content that we believe can be indexed. We're already seeing some early stages with that here. We think that over time, that'll drive low-cost acquisition because people are, look at how many people are searching for these terms. Or, you know, 40% of our customers today are inviting. We believe that we can scale that into an acquisition channel. I think the question you're really trying to answer is like,
0: how are we going to grow? Totally let's transition a little bit into uh, acquisition channels and just starting to build that what's sort of the right way to think about it what's what's not the right with you know mistakes that, that people make uh, when they think about it maybe Jeff let's start with you
2: yeah so for um, for acquisition channels um, I would say you need kind of bucket them into two different buckets There's are short-term and long-term acquisition channels um, so let's say let's say you're a consumer or startup right and so the, as I mentioned for the two most common acquisition channels that work that scale really big for our consumer companies, are referrals and SEO. And the thing is, as a CSA startup, you can't just hundred percent work on SEO because if it, if it works, it will work a year out from now and it'll be, it'll be too late. So that's why when I advise um, startups to work, let's say they do have um, UGC, uh, unique UGC. So they should work on SEO. Like for the way to think about it is like five years from now, if, this, if I want this company to be successful, SEO needs to be big. And so Now I don't need to work hundred percent on it, but maybe I spend 10% of my time and just set up the basics. So I recommend a lot of like set and forget kind of strategies that like literally take the founders, like I don't know, like three days to to do and they can just set it and forget it for six, for six months. And then that'll kind of be their um, base to start growing SEO. And then for referrals, um, referrals you probably can invest more on early on and have it be worth it because it will pay back um, pretty immediately Um, because if you already are getting users and you make your referrals channel better, then those users will generate more users. And so I think it's just, you have to take bets that make sense given where you are in your company. And you have to do a mix of short-term things, like things that maybe don't scale and long-term things, things that do scale. Um, So yeah, that's kind of the advice that I give companies about growing acquisition channels. Yeah, I think
1: a little bit about which of these channels require substantial like what i would call what we call minimum scope like what's the level of fire you need for it to actually start burning and 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 think about return on time spent the number one enemy for a startup is time dollars is important too but like you know you have a certain amount of time runway and how can you get returns over the time frame that's most valuable to you so like if you have you know 12 months runway and six months to your next fundraising event it's you know, what are the investments you can make that get the best returns over the next six months? And is there anything we have to do to make the next six months great too? I think is one framing that I like to use for um, thinking about time investment and what where to spend uh, where where to spend energy. I think the other question is like, what things do you need to have evidence of strong theses on versus actual like numbers going up, uh, and 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 making sure you're making bets on both sides of the coin for that. On the B2B side, I think it's interesting that um, the same kind of rules apply. There's SEO, there's content strategies, et cetera. Um, as, but I think there is a question of, um, you know, is this the kind of thing you're selling into a decision maker, like an individual person who then is going to scale the product out inside their organization? Or is it a more like bottoms-up type product where one or one part of the organization is going to adopt it? usually somewhat organically, usually for free, and then seed usage inside of the rest of the organization. And how do you align your, how do you make sure that your acquisition channel like makes sense with that? I think, you know, there are a lot of great outbound list type strategies where you can actually start to build a sales team early and start reaching out to people. But you need to be solving sort of a known problem to a known buyer inside of an organization for that to work. Um, For some of these more developer productivity or remote productivity type tools that we're seeing. I think they look a lot more like consumer products. You need to be able to drive like early person to person growth and acquisition channels that seed across an organization versus like sell in.
2: Yeah. To add on to read. Uh, yeah. So for, for B2B like there's, there's basically two main strategies there's sales and there's bonds of growth. What I actually see a lot of is usually founders over index into one or the other, whereas they should be working at least maybe like 75% in one and 25% in the other kind of mix so there's companies that are like, oh, we, we have to grow with bottoms of growth so we just won't do sales. And I think that's kind of a mistake. And, or they say, oh, we could o- we're going to only focus on sales and we won't start investing in our bonds of growth until like no. three years later. Mm-hmm. Which I also think is a mistake because bottoms of growth takes a long time to ramp up. So yeah. usually I think um, depending on the company, your mix will be different. Like some companies should work more on sales and some companies should work more on bottoms of growth. Mm-hmm. But I would say most, for most companies, that best I would give is like you need to do a mix of both. Yeah. yeah. And there's awesome
1: feedback loops that come out of that too. If you have a, a great like self-serve bottoms up type engine and a B2B company and you start layering in sales one, you now have a human being doing customer research with all of your best customers automatically because that's that person's job, not necessarily to sell it cold but to like understand how that person how those people are using the product and they can bring that intelligence back to your product and growth team to understand what's working how they position it internally because often there are people in that company doing the selling for you and you want to know what that information is on the other side if you have like more of a sales top down approach you can you know building good bottoms up type product or self service type product can help you lower your implementation costs, get to market earlier, attract a wider range of customers. And so there's this bi-directionality there that I think is um, not as obvious as it seems up front. I think we're thankfully moving past the mythology of the no sales enterprise software company that I think existed in the early 2010s where it was like, you don't need sales. It's all non-incremental. It's bullshit, blah, blah, blah. I think we're kind of past that. But I think what's it's been really interesting to think about the intersections of those two things and how the information moving back and forth can be incredibly valuable for product development.
0: I love that. Are there other are advice or sort of zooming out or common advice that you find yourself giving or common misconceptions you find yourself correcting among your sort of seed stage founders or, or soon to be seed stage founders, either in, in consumer or, or, or enterprise that we haven't yet talked about?
1: One of the things I talk to a lot of people who think like the way they're going to do growth is like, Hey, I have 150 different ideas about the different channels that we can go after and the ways that we can drive growth. And I love the energy is great. And it's really important to be experimental, but great companies are built on one to three channels usually like, and one of them is primary. And then there are other ones that are added as like accelerators. That's not true forever, You hit these, you know, invisible asymptotes, and you hit these ceilings in your growth, and you have to find new ways. And you want to be out ahead of those, which is why I believe it's important to look at multiple things. But the idea that you're going to kind of like hand hack your way to, you know, early growth, like you can do a little, but that that's going to be sustaining for you. I think is a mistake. I think it's usually better to focus on the core things that are going to be the most important and ignore after the first month, how I got to 10,000 users in eight days type posts in the world, like Mm -hmm. that stuff's all like the hacky shit is good, but you should only use it if you need to get to a minimum threshold in order for the business to work. That stuff only works in these like marketplace type businesses or network effect type businesses where you need a little bit of heat. And it doesn't matter how you get the heat, the the, the engine works after that. Otherwise, like work on your sustained long-term growth strategies in a focused, and thoughtful and strategically minded way.
2: Yeah. I think uh, we talked a lot, a lot of misconceptions actually in, in this podcast. Um, but maybe one other is um, this, this thing, this thing, month over month growth that I think a lot of startups uh, try to, try to go on, like, which I don't think is that great. Um, as I mentioned before, I think in the beginning, you're trying to figure out if the product you're building is something people want. And so you want to look like at quality metrics month over month growth is a quantity metric. And, which is one problem with it. But another problem with it is like when you're going from 10 users to 20 users in a month for a hundred percent month over month <laughs> like that's obviously not sustainable. So like, if you say you want to grow like hundred percent month over month for like three months, like obviously it will it'll look good in the beginning. It'll be easy in the beginning, but it'll be hard uh, later on. And month over month component growth only really happens when you have a few things in place. Um, for example, when you have, a retentive product so the for the so the users that you got previously aren't churning and you don't have to replace them and also you have you have uh excellent channels that actually scale so that like every for example if you have referrals when you have more users you have more users inviting more users so that's that's how you actually get compounding month over month growth so it's really it's really rare to see a startup that just like every month maybe yearly they'll compound month month like pretty consistently, but month over month, like very rarely, there'll be ups and downs and that's totally Mm -hmm. fine. So I'll say in the beginning for startups, like don't focus on that month over month over growth and like, which also might force you to overindex on acquisition when you should be focusing on building a great product. Instead, you should focus on, yeah, building a product that users actually want, um, trying to like, understand the user through like talking to users, through looking into user metrics to see like, is, do do they actually say they like it and do their actions match what they say and using that to kind of build like a really excellent product before you even worry about like, do you have a thousand MAU or do you have 10,000 MAU because yeah, I think it's, it's not your early quantity numbers aren't indicative of your future. at all. I think one of the like biggest
1: problems with this month over month target metric thing is, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of, I think it's Goodhart's law. It's that, uh, Once a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. The focus on it has led people to do unnatural things to drive it. I think I said at the beginning, like natural organic growth is a great sign that you have good product market fit. And it is. But I think a lot of what you're seeing is people sort of like doing very one-off unnatural things to drive that metric to like, and it's hard now to tell the difference between like real momentum and fake momentum lasting momentum versus like temporary momentum so i think it's more it's it's like it was good until everybody thought about it and then it stopped being good
0: yeah it's it so if you were running yc you would scrap the 10 percent week over week growth
2: oh yeah to- totally i mean obviously I'm, I'm way less qualified than every partner <laughs> at yc but i always i'm good friends with uh gustav at yc I, actually i tell him oh you, you should uh, have your Startups uh, focus on retention, and if they have retention metrics, put it on their like demo day decks. That would be really useful to me as an investor, because um, that's way more important to me than if you have a hundred or a thousand MAU. Yeah, so you need to focus on like yeah building a really great product before you can focus on growing.
0: That yeah, but then you won't have a graph that's all the way up into the right and raising yeah. fifteen uh, post post demo day.
2: <laughs> or I would just shift my.
1: I mean, I think that's a great metric for people who are past some threshold. I think you're seeing. More YC companies enter the program later with like some early product market fit, and they're really there to like figure out how they're going to accelerate the business and drive a fundraise. And I think there's some, there's a lot of value to that when you have the, the the signs of product market fit already, and what you're trying to show is that enough people care about this product for me to build a business. Maybe then, but I would sub segment a little bit and maybe focus that on the people who are like. Coming with something more established, and the ten to twelve weeks is more about like making a case <laughs> than it
2: is uh, for long term growth. Than it is like figuring out what that product is. Yeah, and it's more it's more impressive when it's going from like a thousand to like two thousand yeah. than going from ten to twenty or a hundred to two hundred. Yeah, oh. or five to eight. Like these, the
1: the sure telltale sign is the percentage with no numbers. Like. I
2: basically just ignore those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I always look. Yeah, we always just look for the the raw numbers, not the percentages, because yeah. we we can't the percentages ourselves. If we need. Yeah. yeah, yeah, raw number growth.
1: It is very hard to fake. Hundreds of people. It is you you know like or even thousands ideally and B two B maybe hundreds of paying customers. That's where I'm like, okay, that's hard to fake. Like somebody actually cares about this thing.
0: Totally. 10 minutes that I want to get through a couple topics. One is uh, building, a, building a growth team. Uh, so Farid, w- w- when's the right time to build a growth team? What kind of people should I hire? How do I know yeah. when to focus on? When to start? Walk through. It. So
1: I think we talked about a bunch, like what are the ingredients of a company that's ready for one? I think that we've covered that already. Like, do you have product market fit? Is there some organic growth already? Do I have a strong thesis about Where my strongest growth engine will be in the long run? And what do I, can I start to think about how to invest in that? And I think that's one of the most important things is early on, that's still a hypothesis. It's not a known known. I think people run into mistakes when they hire like an SEO expert to run growth early on right? Or someone with really, really deep and narrow knowledge in a single area. No matter what your hypothesis is, you got to leave some room for flexibility and a little bit of exploratory. So what I'm looking for for an early growth leader is like, obviously, an analytical mindset, creativity, meaning like they think on their feet and are able to think through different different forms that might work. And uh, I would say the last ingredient for me is like a depth of caring about the business as a whole, rather than just their like narrow line of focus or the individual playbook that they had at the last place that they had. I think you need to build a flexible team that's willing to try, like again, be flexible on the tactics and consistent on strategy. Tough to interview for, but uh, I think like ambitious, hardworking, analytical, tend to be the things that I'm looking for. I would start small. So from a team perspective, one to two people, two to three people, maybe a half a designer and a lead, like some sort of product manager slash marketing lead to drive the initiatives and sort of help uh, shepherd the ideas. Um, but I, I would say start small because you want to be as flexible as possible on process. That's from the product yeah. perspective, at least.
2: Yeah, I thought that was
1: a great answer. Not much to that. For me. What about um, technically? Like, are there any foundations you think are important to have before you start a growth
2: practice? Not too much. I like, uh, it's actually easier for I feel like it's easier for a growth team to operate earlier on than later. Not not that because you don't, but you don't want to hire a growth team too early because uh, in the beginning, everyone's just kind of hacking away. You can make changes really quickly without um, much friction. You, you can like no one's going to push back on big changes, so it's actually kind of easier in that way. So, yeah, nothing really from a technical perspective. It is kind of easier in the beginning. You can move faster in the beginning. Yeah. I would only add one thing, which is that um, the
1: analytical foundations for your company are sort of written in the first year or two. Um, I have found that in my experience, it is very hard to undo, like, the analytical foundations, the tracking, the measurement, the storage, (laughs) and those kinds of things as you get later and later stage like analytics debt is like technical debt, maybe even worse. So I would say uh, that early team should maybe spend some time and energy getting your tracking and, and metrics and key details, the most important pieces right early on, just so you don't end up with a giant mess later. I mean, I've, I've had some of my jobs, like a year of just like trying to, reason with the data to figure out like what's working what's not working rewrite it all to be consistent there's some you can get in some really bad habits
2: yeah actually probably more important than the the timing now that i think about it is actually just getting the right person because the number of people who have let's say like five years of experience um in growth is a lot less than the number of startups there are so just even being able to hire someone good is actually one probably one of the biggest blockers i would say like if you can hire someone good pretty early, like. Yeah, you should definitely take them because the opportunity doesn't come very often. Um, but like, if not, then maybe you maybe you don't have to rush into it because, as Free said, a lot of the foundations are set in the very beginning and are really hard to undo. So yeah, I think waiting for the right person is is really important.
0: Totally, Jeff. Could you give us a, a couple minutes, or maybe one each? I know we were r- rapidly summarizing on um, on SEO and referrals. What's a you know a mistake that people make, or what's the most important thing to think about for, for either?
2: Um, yeah. So for SEO, it's like if you have a, if you're a content, ba- content and and have a if you're content based service and you have a web presence, like you have to win SEO to, to kind of win. Like also, like if you're in travel, you kind of have to win SEO to win. So that's just kind of the mindset you need to have around SEO. It, it's that important, but that doesn't mean you should spend 100 percent of your time on it um, in the beginning because it takes a long time to pay off. So this way, SEO referrals, referrals like work for most services where. There's an incentive, like there's a dollar value incentive and it's pretty much worked for, it's worked for a lot of companies basically. So it's kind of a low risk channel to tackle. And so that's why it's one of the first channels that I recommend for a lot of startups because it's, it's relatively low risk. Like, you know, it's, it's going to work if people actually want that incentive. So yeah, it's a good first channel to, to do.
0: Jeff, uh, Farid, uh, uh, guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. For people want to learn more about your, your work or upcoming work, any, uh, any plugs that you want to leave us with?
2: yeah follow me on twitter far33d <laughs>
0: yeah
2: um i also post growth thoughts on twitter jeff chang 30 uh, i also have a blog that i occasionally write longer blog posts growthengblog.com
0: and and, and get these guys on your cap table if, if you can uh you'd, ah. you'd be lucky on deck is certainly lucky uh so uh jeff free thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast great
1: thank you eric
0: thank you